we don't have a futures market in healthcare, so nobody can hedge. And that's why prices are so high. If the pharma company had a place to hedge decreasing sales, they could get the same margin for a lower price. If the insurance company had a place to hedge rising costs of drugs that cure you, then they would make those drugs available. Right. You found the solution. I'm extraordinarily humbled to have Greg Simon, graduate from University of Washington Law and former executive director of Cancer Moonshot put on by the White House. He has served both in the White House and in Congress, and he's doing amazing, innovative things to really help healthcare and to get costs lowered, to get access increased for everybody to, uh, to be alleviated or not have that fear of cost when it comes to accessing good quality care for yourself and for loved ones. I started off by asking him, Greg, what is your best analogy on what are the challenges in cancer and getting good cancer care to people across the country? It's easier to analogize it to food uh, because everybody deals with food every day. True. Most people fortunately don't deal with cancer every day. And so when they do have to deal with it, they need context. Right. So we know that in food, there's been a huge change in generations. And um, uh, we now have these massive corporate farms. Right. right. So so the, the same has happened with, with medical research. It used to be very widely distributed. And then the industry consolidated. And so you have a handful of big pharma companies a much bigger handful of small biotech companies. And then you have the traditional university research system. Well, as in food, the problem isn't that we don't have solutions, as you said. Mm -hmm. The problem is they're not equitably distributed because just with food, there are places in the world that have way too much food. America, parts of America right. have tons of food, surplus, people waste, they don't think twice. Parts of America are food deserts. Those places, not only is the food not available because they don't have very many grocery stores in inner cities, and for instance, but also because where they live, it can be very expensive to get things to them. Um, and uh, communities uh, have very different access to organic food or so-called health foods, et cetera, et cetera. So you think about um, cancer. The solutions for cancer are also not equitably distributed, by which I mean, in my hometown, when my father was diagnosed in 2001 with lung cancer, you could only get cancer in my hometown on Tuesday or Thursday, because those were the only days cancer doctors came over from Memphis. Right. And to this day, that is true. 20 years later, same thing. So. We talk about all the wonderful breakthroughs in cancer, but unless we get them to the people who need them without regard to ability to pay, then we're not dealing with it. We're not dealing with cancer. So my, my uh, analogy with food and cancer is that we know there are food deserts. We know there are children starving. We know there are pockets in America that are incredibly challenged for good nutrition. That's exactly the scenario in cancer. We lose black men and black women to prostate cancer and breast cancer that white people don't die mm -hmm. of. We lose children to cancers that we can cure because of where they live. So it is really crucial in my thinking today, and I'm, I'm embarrassed that I'm late coming to this. All my career in all these foundations, et cetera, I always had racial and social equity as one of the pillars 
of what we were doing. But I have come to believe that it has to be the central organizing principle. That when we talk about funding cancer, dealing with cancer, moonshots, foundations, if we don't make the distribution of the cures and screening in cancer to everybody the top goal, it will not happen. So all these organizations that are so focused on the technology, right. CAR-T therapies, nanoparticles, you know, different kinds of vac cell vaccines for cancer, we need all of that. But when we put those things together into something that goes into people, we have got to make sure that where you live doesn't determine whether you die. To some effect, I mean, that's what I was, sometimes I'll say like, you know, we're here with, with what we can do with cancer, right? Like, like you said, nanoparticles and, and bioleaks and all this crazy stuff. We're spending a lot of money at top academic centers and tons of money are going to pushing it like this. But the delivery yeah. is right here. And it's like, and... It's so funny, I mean, not funny, but I keep saying that and I've, I've been missing a big glaring point because for me, the solution is educate, 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 and then all of a sudden people will start getting the right care delivered. Is what I was thinking in my naive mind was like, the more doctors know, unfortunately, patients have to be advocates for communities where maybe an oncologist has literally dedicated their life, you know, to see 50, 60 patients a day, doesn't see their family, but cannot stay up on the optimal, you know, management that was out two weeks ago for ovarian versus right. glioblastoma, et cetera. I was like, well, patients would be their own advocates and go seek it out. But what I've been missing is to bridge this here, like in addition to education, and this is the big word and all bold with, with the capital A is access. We have to, what is moving this to here? If you can't, if, if the delivery for the majority of Americans is here, and that is really upsetting and it's really unfair because no one, when it comes to life, should be, you know, dictated on how long they have their mom around or spouse around or child around because of literally where they live. And, and even worse, because of the color of their skin or you know what their upgrading was or the means they had. Oh, again, it just takes a deep sigh. So what are some of the things now? So Greg, fix the problem for us. Tell us how to like, make me move this here because that's challenging. And I know people are listening to this and they're saying, I want I, I, what can I do? What can we do collectively to, to bring that needle up for people? Right, so let me give you two examples of a problem that we can fix. So I have CLLs, I mentioned. Mm -hmm. I've been taking, they don't even do the chemotherapy that I had they five years ago. Well, they don't even do to that. To your now. point, they do do it. And I hear up to 20 to 30% or 40% even in community oncologies are still getting FCR despite the targeted therapies out there today. That's my That's education crazy. piece. That's where I'm like, this, we have the access, they, they'll be covered, but people don't even know to use this, you know, BTK inhibitor. But Which is point, outrageous because I, I've had people tell me, I shouldn't have even gotten the chemotherapy seven years ago, actually. So the, now I'm on two pills, right? Ibrutinib and Venetoclax, mm -hmm. Imbruvica and Venclexta. They cost a combined $39,000 a month. I pay $210 copay. Now, for if, if another family making $30,000 a year had the same insurance that I have, they couldn't afford that right? because that $200, $210 a month for the rest of my life right. is a huge amount of money, right? So number one, when people say they're all for ending cancer, but they're not supporting expansion of insurance, including Medicaid, they're not for ending cancer. That's number one. So support insurance expansion 
in any form whatsoever. The second point is because of my leukemia, I did not have any response to the COVID vaccines. And I did two Pfizer shots and a Johnson & Johnson shot. So now they have this new shot, Evusheld, that's for immunocompromised suppressed people. Only 20% of the supply has been used because people don't know about it, don't know where to get it. Their doctors make up criteria that the government doesn't use on who should get it. Um, and most people who aren't in the business may not even know it's out there. They're not reading nature. They're not reading science. They're not reading the Washington Post. So it breaks my heart that there are people with my cancer who are going to die of COVID because they don't know that they can get this shot. They don't know how to get it. And their doctors are passive, not active. So I have, I have uh, just last week spoke with Ashish Shah about this, uh, the new COVID czar, because this is something near and dear to my heart. Um, because COVID happened just around the time of the birth of my first grandchild. And it was incredibly daunting to me how I was going to get protected mm. so I could be with my grandchild. And the, the fact of the matter is most people faced with that scenario don't know what to do, where to go, or even who to ask. So the two problems that everybody can help fix are support insurance expansion, and make sure that everybody you know with cancer knows about these shots for COVID and to, and to bring it up to your community, bring it up to your workplace, bring it up to your college fraternity, whatever, wherever you are in life, bring it up to the people that you know. I've certainly done that through LinkedIn and other ways to let people know this is out there and that they can do it. I mean, that's, that's huge. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a nice little full circle because one, you have an issue of access, meaning like even accessing depending on your demographic or whatnot. But in this case, the issue is access to what is already accessible. How do you improve even the access meaning to like, hey, you should go access this because you can. So it is accessible, but you don't like you don't even like aren't aware of the like need to access it. And that's where, you know, the administration has like they they did this just I mean, within a month or two ago, they put together the healthcare leaders uh, in social media roundtable. And so that we have participants uh, because none of us knew the same way, like you started as a, you know, a rock star and then went to, you know, found yourself with the Plinko chip into cancer. A lot of us are doing education uh, as physicians to teach people about different things. And then the White House said, how do we get these extremely important pieces of information out there? And so, you know, for my pillar, one of them is cancer and, and actually the other one's access because I practice in Louisiana. So that's, I mean, first of all, you're going to do a big service because I'm going to tell all of my, you know, all of the participants of that roundtable uh, to get this out there. And that's, just, that's, that's so huge. And, and that's the biggest, that's the thing that keeps you up at night, right? When you go to bed and you know something's there and yet people are suffering with something when it could, it, it's literally there. Like there was on the shelf and then somebody lost somebody, a uh, loved one. Um, you know, interesting point about what qualifies as immune compromise. I'm going to go for, on a segue for a second. But when you're talking about lymphocytes and immunoglobulins, okay, those, that stuff kind of relates to antibodies. Everyone knows antibody now. But that saves me a little time in my, in my clinics. But that whole constellation has to do with things that are like memory cells and also the smarter cells that go attack things. That's different than your innate immunity, which is the stuff that clears out. They're kind of the pawns on the chessboard. They, they just know to do what they need to do. It's not really specific to, to a virus or to, you know, hepatitis, anything. They just, they just do their job and they, it was one dimensional. 
But when you're talking about that lineage of lymphocytes and antibodies and B cells and all that stuff we talk about, it applies to CLL. It applies yep. to a lot of lymphomas, because like I said, lymphoma, uh, lymphocytes, and it applies to myeloma, you know, interestingly enough, because again, that's all the, this side of differentiation and not related to the others. And those are particularly vulnerable because again, like you said, how are you going to get a response, an antibody response to memory, the smart cells, the CIA or, or whatever, to something when your whole job is to reduce that, those people, because they're the ones that are causing a problem in your body. So that's, you know, that, that's a segue, but I hope that can help people appreciate what immune compromise is versus something like, you know, if you're getting just big chemo like you did, they were checking your blood counts regularly. They weren't checking your lymphocytes at that time. They were checking what are called your neutrophils, which are granulocytes. It's a whole, those, those are the two lumps, like lymphocyte stuff, plasma cell stuff, memory stuff, and granulocytes. And those granulocytes are those, this, the ponds I talked about, but absolutely necessary to not get the simple infection or bugs you're breathing every day when clearing every day, if your count is under 500, suddenly you can get in big trouble. And that's why we give prophylaxis, which means here's some antibiotics, right. here are the things we know that when your counts fall, we need to protect you against because they're never a problem unless you don't have the pawns on the chessboard to play and then it's checkmate. So I love, so the two big points is immediately to kind of basically democratize literally cancer care so you don't have to worry like if you're rich can i am i am i am i am i successful enough in what i'm passionate about financially to even keep my wife around my dad around my son around that's it that's the worst feeling it's hard enough to lose a loved one but then after the fact always wonder if like you know was it your fault to a degree i've heard that you know right and you're saying the solution to that and avoid that for people is to help expansion of insurance and that means like make it democratized or in the sense of saying like where it doesn't matter those things shouldn't dictate what therapies you're a candidate for what a shame right in science That's right. the humankind like the collective humankind challenge and yet we can address it into to large degrees and you can't we can't even offer it to people so that's one and then number two you were saying basically an access to the access and when it gets accessible how do you let people know about it that's right. So That's right. what other parts or elements do you think um, or have you seen are still being worked toward? Well, I guess one to to make the insurance thing happen. Can you, is that something you do locally? Is it federally? You know, what federal. are, okay, right. Federal and, the federal and then state with regard to Medicaid. Right. Medicaid right. is a saving grace here. Like, you know, I know some people are critical that you know, often don't have Medicaid, but like it is literally what keeps people alive you know in these circumstances it's debilitating that's right and there are many states that refused to take free money to expand medicaid why is that under because they were may i speak freely it's because republican governors didn't want to help obama uh and or biden uh expand the program because they don't like expanding insurance why is that because it costs money oh the fact that not expanding it costs lives is somehow lost on a ridiculous number of Republican governors in this country. And of course, it's the poorest states who have the worst policies. Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, just go down the list. My home county is 50% poverty, white people and black people. So not expanding Medicaid means that people live in fear their entire lives of getting sick and especially of getting cancer. It's just not acceptable. It's, you know, perfect example of that is I was, I was checking out, we, we were kind of moving houses and I was getting a used item 
at a, at a big store, and the gentleman across the desk somehow mentioned he saw that I was an oncologist and says, oh, I'm seeing an ENT, and I was like, you know, of course, I had to ask why. I was probed to, and then, uh, and, you know, he had this mass, and he, like, you know, kind of, again, I was, felt compelled to need to feel it, and sure enough, it felt for sure malignant. I mean, it was rock hard, it was big. And then I told him, you know, I could tell, obviously, being, you know, I think a compassionate oncologist, like, he was nervous and everything, and so I was like, here's my card, like, just text me, like, even if I'm not taking care of you, whatever system you're in, you know, it can be a scary process. And then, like, the the call that came, the ne- you know, in the coming days was not the one I expected. It wasn't the fear about his life. wasn't the fear about if it was cancer. You can guess what his, what his question was. He was like, I don't have insurance working at this desk job. He's like, how do... And I'm still struggling with this. I don't even... I, he's still waiting an answer. What is the next step? How do we know what the cost of the biopsy, the CT scan is? My financial team here has been excellent, and they're, tr- and they're saying the sources that we could offer, but he doesn't have a diagnosis yet, so how do you get those things? So it's, it's, it's so murky to navigate, and it breaks my heart, truly, not just for like him, him for sure, but just more on a conceptual basis. The biggest fear right now is how do I get my diagnosis to even start tackling what is the scariest word for pretty much everybody anyway? That's right. And so how... Well, the good news is... There, there, there are organizations, especially one in Boston called Family Reach. Okay, that was a major participant in the moonshot, uh, run by a woman named Carla Tardif, um, who promised a friend of hers who was a pro football player, on his deathbed, that she would help other people be able to afford treatments because he realized after he got sick, and was in the hospital, how many people couldn't afford what he was getting. Oh my God! So. They, they provide financial support for people in cancer therapy, including suspending your mortgage without penalty, suspending your student loan without penalty, helping provide for your parking and your transportation to get you to the hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, they raise millions of dollars every year. Uh, so Family Reach is the first place I always refer people who need financial assistance. Okay, that's fantastic. And, you know, the White House recently kind of announced how even with medical bills in general, not just like with cancer related, but you know, it shouldn't, because these bills can be so big and until we fix, which is a huge challenge, the healthcare system and the cost behind it, they shouldn't be able to not live their lives once they've overcome that medical challenge, especially in the non-cancer ones or the curative cancer ones. And so they made it to where you can now get an FHA back loan without the medical bill debt counting towards your credit score. So like, it's like, if we can't fix it overnight, at least even in that instance, you know, you can, go back to living your life from this, you know, six figure debt that you've incurred to, to continue it without having this chronic financial debility or these closed doors and even helping supportively with that can at least, at least put a bandaid until like we could help to, you know, help expand insurance and, and do these things. So let yeah. me ask you something and, and it's in part due to ignorance, but, and also so that other people can learn when we talk about insurance expansion and especially like in my like I said, state, Louisiana, like Medicaid has helped so many people. How is that different? Or when people say, well, I don't believe in socialized medicine. And, you know, I, I know the answer to some degree, but how, how are those different? And why or why not should it not be grouped as a, you know, partisan thing or anything like that? What is socialized medicine? What are we trying to achieve with expanded insurance? Right. Well, the first thing when people say I don't believe in socialized medicine is to throw my head back and laugh. <laughs> um, do you believe in socialized water? Everybody basically gets free water right. at their house. Do you believe the military shouldn't have socialized medicine? You join the military, 
You have socialized medicine, socialized grocery shopping, socialized gas stations. They're all subsidized by the American taxpayer for a specific group of people who get whatever they need basically for free. Okay, so then is that what, what socialized about, means? That means it's being is the term socialized only to mean that it's like government somehow like uh, facilitated, like they're facilitating the care for the for the military and and the and the countries. yes, that's what that's what. yes, because socialized basically means that government is interfering and or owning the means of production okay. and providing goods at below cost. Right. So your water is a great example of that. The other thing is we have Medicare population, which is a single payer system, mm -hmm. Medicaid single payer system, the VA single payer system. Um, uh, there are two thirds basically of the country already in the socialized medicine system, but we're worried about the poor people who are not on Medicaid, which is a huge number of people just above the limit. Those are the people who have the worst of it. They don't get Medicaid subsidies. They don't have private insurance. They don't have jobs that let them make fifty to a hundred thousand dollars instead of twenty to thirty. So when we talk about oh we don't want socialized medicine, that translates to I don't want other people getting what I have if they can't pay for it. And that may be fine if you're talking about cars. That's not fine when you're talking about health. It's just not acceptable. But why wouldn't some like why wouldn't someone want? I mean, and I don't mean this rhetorically. If they're able to afford their insurance and this and that, what, why, what is the reason they wouldn't want someone else to be able to afford a, a, a different kind of insurance that they couldn't afford otherwise? Well, the usual fear is, oh, my God, I have to stand in line. Or, uh, oh, my God, I'll have to wait a month to get my knee replacement. Uh, people look at the horror stories from other socialized systems like England and Canada. Those are the minority and mainly apocryphal stories. You want to find people happy with their health care? Talk to Canadians, talk to the Swedes, talk to the Brits. I mean, people get, they don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day things that can ruin your life. Right. Now, if you get a rare form of cancer in those countries, they don't make it a habit to pay millions and millions of dollars for experimental drugs the way we do in America. So people say, well, you don't get cancer drugs as quickly here as uh, there as you do here. And that's true. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely but true. That's in the effort but the reason is here. They have a higher bar for efficacy than we do. Right. Oh, gotcha. And, and part of that is because of a single payer system. They see in one database all the outcomes. Try doing that in America sometime. It's not that it's easy. Impossible. And, we'll, and we pay a lot of money for six percent. And like sometimes, literally, the drug has six to eight percent chance of either working or adding benefit or to literally doing nothing. And we pay just hundreds of millions of dollars for them regularly. That's right. And now value-based care is starting and just starting. But basically if a drug costs, you know, like my drug, if my, if my drug that's 20 grand a month doesn't work, why should my insurance company have to pay for that? Right. And so the drug companies are now putting back money and entering into value-based contracts where they sort of self-insure against failure by taking some of the money they were paid for the drug and putting it into uh, savings, so to speak, oh. to reimburse the payer if the drug doesn't work. This is the future. This is going to be happening more and more and more gotcha. because of the good news, which is we are moving from a chronic care system to a curative care system. Right. 
right? My drugs won't cure my leukemia, but they will basically keep me normal the rest of my life. Right. There are lots of other drugs like Sovaldi that cured hepatitis C, mm -hmm. like the new gene therapy that, re that cures blindness in children. Is that worth a million dollars? Yes, it is. Right. Right? Yes, it is. And people worry about the cost of rare diseases. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is the people with rare diseases have been paying taxes their whole life to pay for breast cancer, prostate cancer, the big diseases. Right. There's nothing wrong at all with the rest of us paying our taxes and knowing that some of it's going to go to help people with rare diseases who need a million dollar treatment. Right. Because it took 20 years to figure out the disease. Right. And people's careers have gone and come and gone. But I wanted to talk for a brief moment about the inside game uh, of cancer cure development. Yes. NIH, NCI, yeah. all universities. Um, I just mentioned that we've gone from a chronic to curative healthcare system. But our research system is still in the same mental mode it was after World War II when it started. It is not NIH's mission to treat or cure anything. Really? It is their mission to study biology of human beings and the biology of disease, to study right. it. So when things come along like the new ARPA-H program, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, it is critical that we take that agency and the billion dollars it's starting with and have it focus on translational research that leads to transformative change in how we help people. That is not NIH's goal, and nobody trained in NIH thinks that way. They do not think, how is this going to cure someone? They think, how is this paper going to get published after I do this experiment about the nature of this pathway? The, the joke I used to tell, and I used to give a whole speech about cancer from the perspective of the cancer cell. The first thing the cancer cell thinks when it's born is, I hope I'm not in a mouse. <laughs> because that's the only place we cure cancer. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> right? right? And the second thing is cancer cells are the only part of the cancer system that are 100% focused on the patient. Oh, wow, you're blowing my mind today. It's, it doesn't think about tenure, it doesn't think about patents, it doesn't think about publishing, it doesn't think about money. It just thinks about how can I stay alive and grow in this environment? Until we have that kind of single-minded focus and we're distracted by all those other things, we will never be as smart as cancer. Right. And that's why we'll always be behind. We'll always be trying to like literally behind it, trying to put it, put it at bay, keep it at bay without actually like being ahead of it. So that is one you know, way that if people are thinking, okay, when are we going to cure cancers? That is one, that is just one piece of curing it, what we assume for everybody or in an equitable manner, people forget, you know, that's always left out, but that that is just as big, if not a bigger element, because you can have it, but you're not giving it to other people. So that's what our ARPA is, is trying to, is saying like, hey, let's change it so we can actually start identifying these things. And it's a really great thing that um, I, I just can't wait to see. I don't know how, who, how are they gonna pick who gets, you know, like, cause there's so many amazing startups and, and biotech stuff and, you know, a lot, to this foundation you were talking about where this amazing woman said, people can't afford medicine, I'm gonna start this thing. So many of the startups have, have situations where they're like, I had a loved one or it was myself and I needed something that I could not receive by like the normal challenge uh, channels. Like it wasn't FDA approved yet or whatever. They all have that like, you know, backstory. And the mission is I need to make sure anyone in my situation doesn't have the kind of like 
you know, crazy maze that I had to accomplish for my loved one or wasn't able to. Um, how would they determine which, where the money kind of goes and... Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion about that. What they're not supposed to be doing, and unfortunately people talk about it in the wrong way, they're not supposed to focus on a disease. Right, no. They're supposed to focus on technology that will help us across the board. Facilitate. So, for instance, right. nanoparticles, cell therapy, uh, uh, new approaches to diagnosis through radio, radio images. Uh, artificial um, intelligence you know, to just help. Artificial intelligence, better. machine learning, quantum computing. Uh, one of my business partners just launched the quantum company from Google called Sandbox Quantum. Mm -hmm that can literally look at a molecule and at the electron level, figure out how to improve it, right? We've never had that opportunity before. This isn't a chemistry lab. This is not that gross in the classic sense. This is at the quantum level using Schrodinger's equations. I mean, think about this. Schrodinger equation for quantum physics is now being applied to molecules to save your life. That is an amazing thing I never thought I would see in my lifetime. So that's what ARPA-H needs to focus on. Not on, Not that. Should we, is this treatment for diabetes going to be better than that treatment? They need to do stuff that we can't believe. The other thing is they need to fail a lot. People in NIH don't fail. Right. And the reason they don't fail is because they don't try. By don't try, I mean, when you get an NIH grant, the inside joke is it's for what you did last year is not for anything that might fail. Because if you fail, you may not get another grant. Well, that's why we have incremental progress at NIH. ARPA needs to make quantum progress, quantum leaps. Oh my goodness. And to do that, you have to fail a lot. Thomas Edison failed 10,000 times right. breaking the light bulb. Think about it. I never even thought about that. I mean, I knew it my whole life. Technology, you have to do research or be very heavily involved. And I never thought about the fact that the system itself to make the next progress is so very like rigid in the sense of you have to, exactly what you said, you have to actually, like you cannot fail, otherwise you want to get your grant. And that's, we know that's not the quickest way. Like you have to fail a thousand times to, wow, you're blowing my mind too many times to sustain for one Friday, but, but don't stop. <laughs> now I'm gonna ask you a question where I can only ask this because we're on a Zoom call, otherwise you'd wanna punch me in the face. This one is going to frustrate you. And this, the question is, why are these medications so expensive? As we were talking about earlier, like where insurance has to be the only means to get them. Why? Right. That's one where you're just like, you know. Um, I'll tell you why. It's the same situation that Russia and the U.S. were in in the Cold War. Mutual assured destruction. So pharma companies price their drugs high because they're worried about the future. They're worried about generics. They're worried about failure in the marketplace after it's approved like Vioxx. They're worried about unexpected events that will decrease their activity in the future. Uh. So they price them very high. Why? Because the healthcare sector, unlike every other sector of the economy, has no futures market. What do you, how do you mean? It has no derivative market. Why does that matter? A farmer planting wheat sells that wheat when he plants it, and he knows exactly what he's oh, going to wow. get. I see what you're saying. The pharma company has no place to hedge their failure. It's what they're now, right they're, now. Only half the, they're only half the Cold War, though. The other half of the Cold War are the payers. 
and the payers are worried that there's going to be a new cure that costs more than they want to spend this year and they have no way of bringing those savings into the present from the future. Uh -huh. So in hepatitis C, 20 grand a year to treat you the rest of your life. So if you get it at 40, think about it. 40, you go to 76 average life, 36 years times 20 grand. So Valdi came along and instead of 20 grand, it said we will cure that patient for 60 grand. What did the insurance companies do? Did they say, thank goodness I invested in an index that tracks the cost of treating hepatitis C because that index just went up by three X and I made a lot of money that I can now use to buy the drug. That's not what they said because it didn't exist. Right. What they said was, we will not pay for this drug until you're on the liver transplant list, which means you're going to die right. if you don't get a liver. So if you don't have a place to hedge economically, you hedge non-economically, in this case, immorally. So it just so happens, as you can tell, that I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I'm working with my business partner who's thought about this for 25 years to build a healthcare futures market. A few facts that you don't you can know. Actually build it. We're actually building this, yes. This is going to be a reality next year. So think about this. We spend $450 billion on oil every year. The derivative market where people buy and sell the future is $650 billion. Right. Right? So when oil prices spike, people make money and other people lose money because they made a bet on the future price. Right. But when it goes down, people make money too. Nobody makes money in healthcare when prices go down. Right. Right? Nobody. So think about this. Migraines. You probably don't think about migraines much. The money we spend on migraine drugs in this country is equal to the money we spend on wheat. Think about that. The money we spend on oil is equal to the money we spend on diabetes. But unlike oil or interest rates or uh, climate change or the weather or crypto, we don't have a futures market in healthcare. So nobody can hedge. And that's why prices are so high. The, if the pharma company had a place to hedge decreasing sales, they could get the same margin for a lower price. If the insurance company had a place to hedge rising costs of drugs that cure you, then they would make those drugs available. Right. Right. You found the solution. I hope so, because as I've said this in public in a thousand speeches, you cannot fix the price problem in healthcare Until with price controls, Canada, Medicare negotiations, none of that is going to work. The reason is the underlying economic system of healthcare is from the 50s. Right. Every other sector of the economy has a derivative market to protect against price shocks and to bring prices down and to make price setting a transparent process, which does not exist in healthcare. Not at all. If you put a derivative system in place for healthcare, you get visible supply and demand, transparent price setting, the ability to hedge future increases or future loss of revenue, and everybody can make the same margin they're making now at a lower price oh. because they have a place to hedge. Oh my gosh. I, people are gonna watch this and 
thing, I said, if I didn't say punch me in the face, like it seems like I would, I was prepared for that answer just because I knew this was what you had in your back pocket. I had no idea. I didn't know you like, oh my gosh, this was the most eye-opening thing. That's absolutely genius. And, and for people that, you know, may be like, well, everyone just wants bottom dollar and how do we know they'll be transparent? Just so I make it clear, at that point, you want to be transparent because that's how you're able to get like hedge and, and do your derivatives. At that point, exactly. it's incentivized to be transparent because that has a direct relation to you mitigating your risks of like these price changes. And so exactly. everything's self-satisfied. And I always said that, you know, with healthcare and stuff, I'm like, at the end of the day, every, you know, there's imperfect systems across the world. And I'm like, you, once you accept that it's imperfect, whatever the powers that may be, whatever the incentives are, once you understand that you still make it work for what you're trying to achieve, like, like, which is give good care, this and that, this is that, that thing. Even if you say, you know, the biggest argument would be like, well, nobody's going to act like altruistically. It's not altruistic. You're not, you're not, you're not offering anything that's altruistic or any more like, you know, ethical. You're just economic self-interest. Right. It's just, you're just making it to where all of a sudden the transparency is the collateral benefit for all of us and cheaper costs. It doesn't necessarily make the powers that be, you know, any, and that, but that's, that's what you have to do. That's the only way to fix it is to do something like that, to accept what it is and then find a way to make it, you know, downstream something that benefits us as individuals. Wow. That's right. And, you know, people say, well, will this, will, will this affect, you know, poor people badly or rural hospitals badly? And, and I, I remind them when you walk into a grocery store, every product in that grocery store is the subject of a futures trade. Yeah. The wheat in the Kellogg's, the meat in the counter, the milk, the vegetables, they are all products that live and die on the futures market because people need to know in agriculture what they're going to get paid. And if they have a better year, they lose a little money. But if they have a worse year, they don't lose the money. Right. So they're willing to make the trade off. Right. So everything in the grocery store, the problem with grocery stores in COVID wasn't the price. It was the availability because of supply chain disruption. Right. It was a very, it wasn't because people were gouging prices. There was no food. It was because they couldn't get from farm to market. Mm -hmm. So in healthcare, the reason we have all these high prices is people have nowhere to hedge. And so the only hedge is to raise your prices. Right. It's just, it's in real time. Everything has to behave in real time and like real, like real time bills. I got this thing to pay this, you know, today, this is what I have to do to make the ends meet because it's not anything prospective. It's all like, like, it's just, I depend on this today. And if, if I don't get it, I'm, I'm screwed for like, yeah. And I know we can reduce the cost 15% immediately because we can get rid of the pharmacy benefit managers that who add 15% of cost for no benefit to the I patient. I had no idea. What Zero benefit to the patient. Serve. So once we get rid of the middlemen, which we can do with this system, and to democratize the future of healthcare, let's say you're Pfizer and you need a billion dollars to make a new drug. Right now, they have to go borrow that money or take it out of their bank. It's lost opportunity yeah. cost. What if they issued a billion dollar note and it says, if you invest in this note to help us develop this drug and it fails, we will give you your principal back. But if it succeeds, you will get a royalty on the future profits of this drug. What does that mean? Well, it means that Pfizer can lower their cost of capital, which means they can lower their price and still make the same margin. Right. And it means that if you get enough of these notes together with institutional investors, you bundle these notes, Pfizer, Glaxo, Bristol, whatever, you bundle them into an exchange traded note that you can put on the market and the average investor can invest in it. 
So I could invest in the next leukemia drug. And if it works, I'm going to get a royalty, which I will use to pay for the drug. It's like, it's like a blockchain of like NFT, like the actual, like, you know, subscribership of like what you're investing in specifically to a running log. And it's almost like at the same time, a guild of where everyone has a common like goal, even though they have their individuals within a company. And you can, I think it would actually facilitate more collaboration than anything else because you could just trade, you could trade these, you know, notes and invest. Yes. And it means people can invest in their own disease. Right. So if you want to buy a Tesla, you may invest first in Tesla and see if you can make some money. Good luck. And then buy the car. But if you have cancer and you want to invest in the company that's making the drug for you so you can make money when they make money, that's not how it works. You have to buy Pfizer, which is a dividend stock. Right. And is affected by the CEO making a mistake or the board firing somebody. What you want is to know I'm invested in the drug that's going to save my life. And if it does well, I can use that profit to buy the drug for myself. My mind is repeatedly blown. I have no more mind to blow. This is crazy. It really is a blockchain of like somewhat NFT, yeah, but also the stock market put together. Yeah. That's absolutely Insane. It would definitely be a blockchain thing, but the difference between this and crypto is that this matters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, a lot of my friends would hurt hearing this, but but you're clear a good bit. Well, Greg, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm just I'm just so grateful for you. I and I mean that like off podcast. Like, thank you for literally everything you're doing. You've inspired me to a whole nother degree just talking with you in this hour. Like, I just really want to. I have so much to learn. I have so much to pursue and like put like, we all have passions, right? For things about like to help people or whatever it may be, but we need the direction. And you're a man that really, you know, highlights what needs to be changed and the directions to go achieve that. And I appreciate you for that so much. Well, thank you. You know, and I'm really jealous because with podcasts like yours and the kinds of things that you can do, you and your peers are learning things that I wish I had learned when my hair was your color. <laughs> and you you are you and your whole generation can do so much more than my generation did because of the knowledge that shows like yours uh, impart to the general that. public. It's the quantum, right? It's the quantum growth. It's the full circle, just like what you're saying. That's right. You got it. You know, it's the access to these things to help catalyze the entire process. <laughs>